When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Siri. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Sharonik Boshu. And I'm Kim Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. How will critique save the world, popular theory, and public humanities? This episode is based on a conference paper that we wrote for the American Comparative Literature Association Conference in 2023. It departs from our usual conversational style, but we hope you enjoy it. Part one. Every year from 1986 to 2014, the Queer Students Alliance at Brown University held a party called Sex Power God. Key terms of critical practice, the erotic, the divine, and queerness in the university get you most of the way to new historicism while the critique of power is central to theory from Machiavelli to Marx, Fanon to Foucault appear in the name of an notoriously raucous student bash. We contend that popular forms have been central to the construction of critical thought and remain necessary to any compelling future orientation. When we wrote this talk, we were responding to a call for papers that included a line about critique being, I quote, a hangover from the bad old days of high theory, end of quotation. Kim and I love this phrase, not just because we host a podcast called High Theory, but because it locates the history of the critique in the body. In the bad old days of high theory with Villiers and Guattari, I quote, we had hallucinatory experiences. We watched clients leave one plateau and proceed to another like columns of tiny ants. We made circles of convergence, end of quotation. Then we woke up with a hangover and a grumbling ambition to critique. When we were deciding on a name for our podcast, the word high, signifying the ambition of our remit, We plan to be promiscuous with our definitions, just as we are in real life, perhaps. Theory would include the Frankfurt School and its descendants to an extent, and rather than trace a taproot that takes us back to Aristotle, we would follow the rhizomatic tendrils of thought to all sorts of adventures in cultural criticism. We would even talk to physicists and computer scientists. An interdisciplinarity of method of query, we thought, could be met by the grand inclusivity of theory in our historical moment despite the hangover. A word here about parsing theory and critique and criticism as distinguishable methods. We base our podcast on the connotative overlap between theory and critique, not so much as contingency in the history of literary critical humanities, but as the prerequisite condition of our work. As a grad student and contingent scholar, our interests lay in what doing theory could say about the state of the profession, or more importantly, what it could do. In 2020-2021, that corner of Twitter where literary humanists live was rocked by debates that were collectively termed 
the method wars. Lines were drawn in the sand, especially between efficacies of critique and post-critique, between supposed attitudes towards pleasure of the text in both camps. In due course, academic Twitter made fun of academic Twitter and the fact that it had found devolving into a method war necessary in the first place. In her essay titled The Shush, Kyla Watson and Tompkins pointed out that, quote, these are not method wars, these are resource wars. Every war, if we want to use that term so loosely from here on out, is going to be a war of resources pretending to be something else, as perhaps all war has ever been. End of quotation. As grad student and contingent scholar, we wanted to code resource scarcity into the way in which we deployed theory, never bound in stringent definitions, and often as euphemism for all sorts of readings. Times are hard, and no kind of analytical pleasure should be foregone. If we take Twitter for the public sphere, and we do so cautiously, the method wars become a contemporary form of popular theory rather than a spat of academic infighting. The pleasure of the text at stake in the methodologies of critique and post-critique looks a bit more embodied and a bit less arid when we focus our attention outside the classroom. What is it that makes theory worth fighting for? Our hunch is that it's something that lies between the university and the public. The rest of this paper is dedicated to another example from the bad old days, one that latches on to the sex appeal of high theory, only to get trapped in a dynamic of appropriation and misappropriation that brings us back to the contemporary suspicion of theory as conspiracy. Part 2 The 1999 film The Matrix opens with an image familiar to anyone who has walked through a university library during finals week. A person passed out with their head on a computer keyboard. In the film, Neo sleeps in the reflected light of an endless scroll, news media on the computer monitor, headphones plugged in to the CD player. Byun Chul Han's work on burnout asks us to read Neo in relation to the overtired knowledge workers of neoliberal achievement society. The cyberpunk image of illegal hacking late into the night loses its frisson of resistance when we realize it is simply another version of working from home. Neo is wired into the machine, a cyborg subject with headphones for ears, merged with his desk and its technological detritus. The curve of his body slumped against the desk mirrors the curve of the ergonomic keyboard in front of his face. He is awakened by a disruption of the graphical interface. Someone has hacked his computer. Wake up, Neo, the hacker types. The Matrix has you. It issues a command straight out of Lewis Carroll. Follow the white rabbit. Then, to confirm its godly providence, it types, Knock, knock, Neo. Neo stares at the screen in disbelief, then starts when the knock comes at the door. He turns around to attend to the sound, and the text on the screen disappears. This paranoid opening sequence sets the terms for the famous red pill, blue pill scene that has been taken up with a vengeance by the alt-right on the dark web today. But I would like to suggest that it can also teach us something about critique and post-critique. When Neo opens the door, he encounters someone he knows, Troy, a guy with a leather jacket, a fondness for mescaline, and a sardonic and sexy-dyed companion called Dujour. 
The crew surrounding Troy is dressed for a luxe warehouse rave or a Berlin techno club, and indeed, they go clubbing in the next sequence. But they're there to buy drugs, or something like it. Troy hands Neo two grand in cash through the crack of the door. Neo retrieves a mini compact disc from a hollowed-out book. Hallelujah, says Troy when he receives the disc. You're my savior man, my own personal Jesus Christ. Neo replies with anxiety. You get caught using that, and Troy cuts him off. Yeah, I know, this never happened. You don't exist. These lines establish the transaction as illicit and pleasure-making, and we could trace a line back from the language of salvation to Dennis Johnson's Jesus' son to the Velvet Underground's heroine. The scene is full of tropes of the illicit drug trade, from the lateness of the interaction and the squalor of Neo's apartment to the cash payment and the hollowed-out book. But it's the book that interests us here, a cloth-bound hardcover with simulacra and simulations stamped on the cover. You've seen the film, and you're listening to a theory podcast, so you saw this coming a mile off. But that might just be because you're a paranoid critic. At any rate, the prop is not identical to the book. The cloth-bound University of Michigan Press 1995 edition of Baudrillard's text, translated by Sheila Glazer, is red, with the title printed on the side, and it's a rather slim book. In the film, the book is green. The title is embossed on the front cover in gold, with a rather dramatic ampersand, and it's fat, the thickness of a thousand plateaus. You can't see the author's name, probably for copyright reasons, but when Neo opens the book, the page that faces the hollowed-out section is taken from Baudrillard's text. It's the first page of the final chapter on nihilism. Rather than show the opening parable of the map that replaces the territory, from which Morpheus quotes the desert of the real, which of course then becomes the title of a book by Zizek a few years later, the Wykowskis chose the final essay in which Baudrillard critiques critique. And I'll quote from Baudrillard's text here, and in fact this quote is from the page that is facing the hollowed out section, the page you see in the film. Today's nihilism is one of transparency, and it is in some sense more radical more crucial than in its prior and historical forms. Because this transparency, this irresolution, is indissolubly that of the system, and that of all the theory that still pretends to analyze it. So the transparency of nihilism belongs to both theory and system. It is indissoluble from it. And the system, in this sentence, is paired grammatically with all the theory that still pretends to analyze it. This is a meta-version of Hahn's argument about neoliberal achievement society. We imagine that we can escape the system by working harder, thinking faster, pushing ourselves beyond the norms and confines of the capitalist workplace. But in fact, our extraordinary labor is presupposed by the system of late capitalism and even constitutes it. In Baudrillard's words, quote, The Matrix is the kind of film about the Matrix that the Matrix itself could have produced. 
So Baudrillard's response to the film in a 2003 interview with Odd Lancian is that they got it wrong. The Wykowskis mixed up the hyperreality of postmodernity with the ancient problem of the world as illusion. And I quote, The most embarrassing part of the film is that it confuses the new problem raised by simulation with its arch-classical platonic treatment. This is a serious flaw. And that's the end of Baudrillard's snarky remark. When Neo takes the red pill, he emerges into a real world outside the Matrix. But in Baudrillard's analysis, to quote another theorist, there is nothing outside the text. Theory has become identical to that which it analyzes. Critique has no teeth because there is never any external vantage point only the system that constitutes the real. Granted, Baudrillard took the long way around to the feminist critique of standpoint epistemology, but that's besides the point. Or maybe it is the point. Towards the end of the final chapter in Simulacra and Simulation, Baudrillard complains, we are in the era of events without consequences and of theories without consequences. But that late 90s moment when media and theory seemed to be collapsing into each other, epitomized by the Matrix and the language poets, has passed. The Ouroboros of theory ate its own tail and coughed up the shreds of the map. The role of prominent academics in the Me Too movement revealed theory to be just another discourse of power, as Baudrillard suggests. The bad reading of hyperreality, which supplied the paranoid allegory of the Matrix, has escaped into the conspiracy politics of the present. Theory has consequences. We are living in its wake. Part three. <clears throat> we would like to suggest two directions we might go in closing. The final image of Otessa Mosfeg's novel, My Year of Rest and Relaxation, features the narrator calm, content, and empty, having succeeded in her quest to sleep for a year. The chemically-induced sleep of Moshek's narrator and the overtired hacker sleep of Neo reframe the flat affect of post-critique. The late capitalist dynamic of achievement and burnout in Hans' analysis helps explain the credential inflation John Guillory sees undermining the academic job market. And it all just makes us want to go to sleep. So that would be the hangover. But there's also paranoia, and we can think here of Sedgwick's essay on paranoid reading and the red pill, blue pill scene from The Matrix as the arch metaphor for alt-right conspiracy theory. The sex power god party at Brown, with which we opened, was shut down in 2014 due to concerns about sexual violence associated with the Me Too movement. But in 2005, it was secretly filmed by a reporter from Fox News' O'Reilly Factor, a conservative backlash that forms a historical context for the critical race theory panic of the present. And this, too, is a form of popular theory. So a choice I will pose to you in bad faith, alt-right or alt-ack. You take the blue pill, the story ends, you wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, 
and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharnik Bosu and Nathan Kim manage our social media presence. Julia Arian Martins edits our transcripts, and Owen Quinn composes our theme music. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day. <laughs>